0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
1: We thought we would begin this conversation. I'm just going to describe the book and talk about it for about five minutes and then we'll be in dialogue. And I've chosen a couple of passages to read. Always the question, where to begin. Where to begin is the title of an essay by Roland Barthes from 1970 where he reveals every beginning as always already in the middle of things. Likewise, fairy tales in which stories are promiscuously borrowed and retold without care for an original author long before Bart, come to us as always already in the middle of things with endless variations that cross cultures and time. The recipes have been shared. As Angela Carter notes, a fairy tale is a story where one king goes to another king to borrow a cup of sugar. And just as fairy tales are not benignly sweet, as they are so often considered to be, neither is sugar. Sugar is overfilling and non-nutritive. It causes tooth decay. Its history is bloodied with slavery. As Bart notes, that we can sometimes call it mild does not contradict its violence. Many say that sugar is mild, but to me, sugar is violent and I call it so. Like the violent sadist of the fairy tale, bluebeard with his wives, the stepmother in the juniper tree who kills her stepson and feeds him to his own father as delicious stew. My mother, she killed me. My father, he ate me. The witch who wants to fatten up Hansel to make him more delicious, sugar overtakes. Aurelia favors the fairy tale as not yet vaccinated or censored with puritanical ideology and tastes of the violence of sugar. An Aurelia is the pupa of an insect which can reflect a brilliant golden color as the chrysalises of some butterflies sometimes do. The great Lepidopterus, author and lover of fairy tales, Vladimir Nabokov, his favorite fairy tale was The Little Mermaid happened to write a short story entitled The Aurelian. At the center of the tale is an elderly dreamer, a collector of butterflies named Paul Pilgrim. Like Paul Pilgrim, fairy tales themselves are wandering pilgrims in search of a better life and a full belly. After all, the fairy tale gives even the little guy hope, insisting that one deserves to be happy and free and full. This concept has been celebrated by Ernst Bloch and Jack Zeitz, Marxist philosophers who find hope in the utopian politics of the fairy tale.
0: Aurelia is
1: gold. Aurelia is a feminine name derived from the Latin aureus, meaning golden. Sylvia Plath's mother was named Aurelia. As Ernst Bloch simply put it, all fairy tales end in gold, but the greed for gold is dangerous. Midas's greedy wish for everything that he touched to turn to gold made it impossible to eat. Aurelia, A-U-R-E-L-I-A, is a homonym with Aurelia, O-R-A-L-I-A, a word coined by the literary scholar Michael Moon, suggesting both the oral tradition of the original fairy tales and the fairy tales affinities with eating, especially when it comes to the great literary fairy tale Alice in Wonderland, you remember she survives her way through Wonderland by eating, enabling her to grow and shrink. Aurelia, art and literature through the mouth of the fairy tale, is told with a butterfly tongue that celebrates war and swallows, chews, and rebels. Aurelia awakens the fairy tale realm in a wide range of authors, artists, books, and objects which fall down its hole. Beyond the expected brothers Grimm and Lewis Carroll, there are more surprising inclusions like the magical materiality of glass, the discovery of Go as a fairy tale dream of finding our own subterranean world of enchantment. Langston Hughes, brown fairies for America's children of color, the grandmother and little red riding hood as photographed by the Japanese artist Maiwa Yanagi as a disturbing image of Hiroshima after the bombing. With each chapter, Aurelia falls deeper and deeper into darkness. With the melancholic rhythm of the fairy tale's close cousin, the nursery rhyme, Aurelia's golden cradle falls, and down comes baby, cradle and all. Humpty Dumpty has a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put Humpty together again. With its plummet into racial hatred in America, Aurelia's final chapter arrives full stop, head over heels. There's no place to go say it for back out of the hole and back to the beginning, or perhaps I should say, in the middle.
0: I think you got a kind of sliver of a taste mm-hmm. of the book from that. Um, it's extraordinary fugal movement through different metaphors, different elements, different symbols, and an extraordinary variety of chosen artifacts. I mean, there are many, many strengths to Carol's work, but she's got the gift of serendipity. She really finds the most marvelous treasures and assembles them in this rather free form. I, I first encountered her work when I was reviewing it for the Times Literary Supplement uh, quite a long time ago—what, twenty years ago? More than that. And and then it was a very innovative style. I'm not saying that it's still not innovative, but but it ha- the more people are practicing it now. Where well, there's a a mixture of the subjective, the daring of the prose poetry, poetic line, um, and then also, which is something we might talk about later, the book as artifact. These are very beautiful books. They are made with very great artistic care, obviously helped by the publishers, but the typography, the the marginal settings, you'll see when you look at it, um, the combination of handwriting. Which takes you into the idea of the intimate, very important to Carol, that we can be critics and scholars, but at the same time we can also experience things, as it were. It was a love letter, a love letter, or an exchange with a child, and so forth. But I want to, to begin, as, uh, in terms of a question, I want to begin with you asking you to expand a little bit more on this image of the mouth, because a lot of the threads through the book um, connect are connected through the idea of the open mouth, the O, which is both a, g- a gap, a hole, a sinkhole, the rabbit hole in, in Alice, but also it is voice. And, it, it, and then at one end is voice, and at the other end is a kind of a more, a, a cannibalistic open mouth, the greedy child, the child that Klein talked about, who you know, devours the mother's breast, um, bad, bad mother withdrawing her breast. Um, so I want you to, just because I think it'd be interesting for them to, you, I mean, you talked about it a bit in that introduction, but this Aurelia is, of course, connected to fairy tale as an oral medium mm-hmm. in many respects, which is coming back through film and so forth, and orality as a form of consumerism. So,
1: mm-hmm. um, Well, like Alice in Wonderland, she, so she's always interested in everything that has to do with eating. Um, so I think it was through partly through Alice in Wonderland that I got interested in the literary fairy tale and its relationship um, to eating. And of course I was interested in this child's body that shrank and grew through Wonderland and her ability to control it. Um, and I'd written a lot about the child and Lewis Carroll's photographs, but when I reread Alice in Wonderland more recently, I realized that she didn't eat much of anything at all. She just takes a little sip or a little taste. So there's almost a kind of anorexic or anorectic approach to consuming in Wonderland. So that's one of the oralities I was interested in. And of course Lewis Carroll is such a great writer and punster so that he plays with language and letters in that way. Cannibalism, is, is in the fairy tales, but it's yes, to me it's always a, mm-hmm. a, an image of the pregnant body who seems mm-hmm. to have swollen another hole, and I think my interest in motherhood and writing about mm-hmm. mothers mm-hmm. Um, comes
0: through that. I mean, it's just a footnote, but in fact Lewis Carroll campaigned against vivisection, Yes. yes so he really, and he, he, and he also instituted high tea in his college in Oxford, um, or tea, rather, so he actually introduced jellies and cakes. I mean, he really was quite autobiographically concerned with the problem of not killing animals for human pleasure and sweets. And, right. and, 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 and sweets, The pleasures that's of right, sweets. That's right.
1: That's right. And you see that though in Alice in Wonderland with mm-hmm. um, all the animals like dinos, I mean the mouse is afraid that he's going to be eaten and so forth. Um, but also Lewis Carroll when he um, is, uh, was at a dinner party he would record what each guest sat mm-hmm where each guest sat and what each guest ate. And he was quite obsessed mm. with food himself, only taking a sip of sherry and a biscuit, apparently, for uh, lunch. Mm-hmm. And he always took all of his child friends to the dentist. So he had some <laughs> obsessions <laughs> with sweetness. Um, so mm. I think Carol is a, is a good person to, uh, to start with
0: yes. that. <laughs> uh, you've actually uh, written extraordinarily well about many writers who are very concerned with childhood and you mentioned that Mm -hmm. but it does raise a a point i think here about what you think of as the fairy tale that's
1: right
0: i mean there are many figures who are eccentrics who are in some ways on the margins of society people who gravitate to this world both an imaginative world Mm -hmm. of the fairy tale and an actual population of children, as Carol did. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a shift of definition of fairy tale in the book that's implied. Mm-hmm. Um, because these are not, you, you mentioned some of the Grimm's and you mentioned Perrault and you mentioned some, I mean, the juniper tree or right. Sleeping Beauty, I mean, and Red Riding Hood and so forth. But a lot of the people like Carol have actually created worlds of their own that that's use right. the language of the fairy tale. That mm-hmm. they, they, they need to go through this, this place of the imagination Mm -hmm. to do what they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might want to take one example, because they're obviously very varied. Mm -hmm. So perhaps you, I don't know, I know you want to read about Mityard, do you want to talk about Mityard before you read about him?
1: I could could talk about uh, mm. Ralph Eugene Meatyard. Is this a photographer? He's an American photographer. Do you know his work? I um, think very few people here would know Um, him. He is becoming quite popular, but he was um, an optometrist, so he's interested in uh, vision, and uh, he was um, a photographer that took... um, I know you can't see it, but there are some amazing pictures that he took, all in black and white. Of his wife and his children wearing very frightening uh, rubber masks um, so that they look like Rumpelstiltskin kinds of figures. And it uh, has a sense of um, the Southern Gothic. They're often in old houses that are falling apart and in jungles, you know, growing enough kudzu to uh, eat you alive. So they have the feeling of maybe Hansel and Gretel or Rumpelstiltskin, but very much um, with a Southern Gothic sensibility. So there's a sense of a uh, magic and horror in there. And there's something, I think photography itself has a kind of fairy tale sensibility to me, that it's a kind of magical medium in, uh, Friends, child friends of Lewis Carroll talk about what it was like you can imagine in the 1860s to go into the dark room with him and to see photographs magically appear, images that are real but not real at the same time and that's something I associate with the fairy tale um, itself. But. Well, maybe I'll read now a, a little bit about Ralph Eugene Meatyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's a good example of how his particular fairy tale sensibility also is um, deeply ridden with the kind of politics that someone like Jack Zipes or Ernst Bloch would attend to the fairy tale. So this is from a chapter called What is Black and White and Red All Over? And my answer is the photographs of Ralph Eugene Meatyard. Um, As dramatic replay of the civil rights movement including the murder of Emmett Till, the butchery of the Vietnam War and hope that was shot down with the brutal killings of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King, the black and white photographs of Ralph Eugene Meatyard are not only mouthfuls of the Southern Gothic literary tradition but the blood of the carnage of America during the time in which they were made. They are black and white pictures of the politics of the period charged with the red voices of Snow White, Rumpelstiltskin, The Juniper Tree, Hansel and Gretel, and Little Red Riding Hood. Perhaps Derek German said it best, red is a moment in time, so I'm talking about the 1960s here. In the fairy tale, red is the color of the blood on the snow and Snow White. Red is the color of Bluebeard, who kills his wives and keeps them in a chamber, its floor awash with blood. Red is the color of Little Red Riding Hood, who could only be red, who is cut out of the stomach of the wolf, who has swallowed her and her grandmother. Red is the color of Karen's shoes, which could only be red, and her chopped off feet in Hans Christian Andersen's The Red Shoes. In 1950, Ralph Eugene Meatyard, who lived from 1925 to 1972, the photographer with a fantastically bloody name, (laughs) bought his first camera to take pictures of his newborn son. The camera was the Kentucky photographer's seemingly innocuous aperture, outwardly as harmless as the opening O of the fairy tale. He used his Rollaflex to swallow and Spit back his daughter Melissa, his sons Michael and Christopher, his wife Madeline, and a few friends through the mouth of the fairy tale set in the American South during the post war period. His camera's mouth spoke the unspeakable racism, Vietnam, America, violence. Meatyard's pictures are not in color, yet they ooze with the same red that stains the colorless fairy tale. Because they don't talk about colors very much in in fairy tales, except for the color of red. As Pullman writes of Grimm, as white as snow, as red as blood, that's about it. (laughs) It took me years to get the joke that turns on the homophone of red, as in the color of Little Red Riding Hood and read, R-E-D, as I have read Little Red Riding Hood over and over. As a child of the 1960s in, the, in America, imbued by the occasion of John F. Kennedy, uh, 1963, the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963, Martin Luther King, assassinated in 1968, and Bobby Kennedy in 1968, coupled with the Vietnam War and the 1969 knife murder of Sharon Tate, Roman Polanski's pregnant wife, violent images have bloodied my memories, so that when I was a child and someone asked me, what is black and white and red all over, I could only see a newspaper splattered in blood. I could not get the joke. Even today, if I hear the riddle, I remember watching my black and white television erupt with the announcement that Kennedy had been shot. I see myself with scissors making paper dolls in the light of the TV screen caught in the never-ending funeral of Martin Luther King. I see myself in the night darkness of my bedroom, and I listen to my mother running down the hall, screaming to my father, now Bobby Kennedy has been shot. Red is a moment in time, writes Derek Jarman. On the 28th of August, 1955, the African-American boy, Emmett Till, who was only 14 years old, was murdered in Mississippi by two white men. He was beaten. One of his eyes was gouged out, and he was shot through the head. His disfigured body was disposed of in the Tallahatchie River. His neck was tied to a 70-pound cotton gin fan with barbed wire. He was lost in the river for three days. When the poor boy's body was returned to his Chicago home, Till's heartsick mama insisted on a public funeral with a glass-covered casket. She wanted the world to see her son's unrecognizable, brutalized, disfigured, tortured, ruined, mutilated, mutilated face. Tens of thousands went to see the black boy encased in his little snow-white glass casket. The image of the poor boy wearing a suit in his glass casket turned monster by monstrous white men was published in Jet the Nationwide Black Magazine, on the 15th of September, 1955. As Roland Barthes writes in his essay on the great family of man photography exhibit, curated by Edward Steichen and first shown at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1955, conceived as a mirror of the universal elements and emotions in the everydayness of life, as a mirror of the essential oneness of mankind throughout the world. Barth asks, why not ask the parents of Emmett Till the young Negro assassinated by the whites what they think of the great family of man. I ask, should I show you till here? The 1960s were hopeful and utopian flower children hippie days, the 1960s were dystopian black and white and red all over days. After a lecture that I gave on Meat Yard, the African American photographer, Leslie Hewitt, suggested that the monstrosities (coughs) of the Kentucky photographer's pictures reflected Emmett Till, and it's something I had thought about. But she asked me why I did not show the photographs of his butchered body in the glass coffin. I replied that I felt I could not show that image, to which she correctly replied, but his mother wanted us to see. His mother wants us to see her boy in his glass coffin framed in gold. Emmett Till's mother forces us to look at her son, to read the black and white and red all over. Emmett Till should be here."
0: Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you know that it actually became a kind of cause celebre recently in New York that Emmett Till was painted at the Whitney Biennial, and, oh, that, and they know. had to move the painting I think they didn't take it down in the end, but they had to move it mm-hmm. to a different position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she had painted the, from the photograph. That's right. But, yes, um, and there was a kind of um, demarcation of uh, who has the right, exactly as you as you discussed there, mm-hmm. um, to look upon these atrocities. And that that, that, inter- that raises. I mean, it made me realize, listening to you, that what you how you see the fairy tale is as a kind of structure to whi- through which you see other things.
1: So That's it's right, not yeah. so it's
0: not the fairy tale itself that you're looking at in this book directly. No, it's the way that the fairy tale and the interesting thing about this case, the Meachard photographs and the uh, Eugene Till, is that fairy tale is so much about horrors that are ordinary horrors, you know, child abuse, uh, husband-wife abuse, um, murders, private murders, so forth, and and somehow the the form, its simplicity, kind masks that and makes it possible to to face it, mm-hmm. but you 're in a sense going it the other way around, because even though we meteors photographs have got masks on, they, they are there 's a lot of facing issues in what That's you right. look at,
1: mm-hmm. um, and
0: so some of the material is quite controversial i 'd say yes, uh,
1: yes, and, yes.
0: And, and uneasy making mm-hmm. 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 so perhaps you could talk a little about how you um, you approach these areas of Sometimes kind of, qu- I mean, uh, Foucault. to me, there's a photographer in the book who's discussed called Foucault. who, uh, this is quite uneasy making for me, I find, these, mm-hmm. these pictures of little boys. But we'll talk about little boys more, you just answer about Foucault first, please. I am
1: using the fairy tale as a lens <coughs> in which to look through the world, mm-hmm. and I think that's my uh, approach in the book and also to look at things that we feel uncomfortable Mm. about that we might not be able to resolve um, which i think the fairy tale leaves open that's the structure of it why didn't she do this or why Mm. did they um accept that um so the the problem of emmett till is 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 that kind of problem i ended up giving a blank page in the Mm, book um, and saying that Emmett should be here, which Mm. was my way to begin to resolve the Mm. problem of representing him, but not representing him. Bernard uh, Foucault, does anyone know um, Bernard Foucault's work? He is um, a French uh, photographer um, who takes photographs of mannequins, mostly adolescent boys, um, color photographs, and he sets them up um, in different settings, almost like vacation or holiday settings um, in France. And they're often places that he went to as a child, and they're very creepy. I have many wonderful students here tonight, and they usually hate Faucon. Sometimes they (laughs) grow to like him. And I agree, they make you so Uneasy, And what he does is he puts a real boy next to these mannequin boys, so you do this double take of what's real and not real, and that's sort of the magic of his fairy tale approach. So he takes the magic of photography and then disturbs us by we can't figure out our reality. How I got on to him though is, I always make the same joke, I apologize, is through my boyfriend Roland Bart, so that. <laughs> Roland Barthes wrote a little essay in 1975 in a magazine called Zoom on Bernard Foucault. And I'm like, because he doesn't write on that many artists, so mm. who is this Bernard Foucault? So mm. that's how I got interested in that. And I am interested in issues of children and adolescents and sex- sexuality and boys. And, so th- and this, and this, boys. Is, and, and this <laughs> is
0: also the area where sweetness becomes a kind of enigma and a difficulty. I mean, these images are apparently sweet, aren't they? I mean, they have... Violently sweet. Yes.
1: Yes. 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 I mean,
0: they're they're sort of sentimentally idealizing and
1: very colorful and... They have a very um, post-war French look to them. You might know uh, Kristen Ross's book, Fast cars, clean bodies. Do you know that about uh, France after the war, where there's washing machines and fast cars and clean underwear? They have that that kind of mm. look to him, of that uh, to them, of that uh, certain generation. So they're they are sweet, but they are very but disturbing. Da- yeah, you know, dangerously sweet. Yes, and but tooth
0: decay sweet.
1: Tooth, and he's <laughs> like a little bit like Lewis Carroll. Though his uh, he what he writes about, as a child, he was afraid that he would go blind for eating too much sugar, and he's made a whole room full of sugar, and often the children have sugar in their hands or or candies and things like that. But uh,
0: There's a continuity with... uh, uh, He has a cookbook, too. Yes. So he, he a real, it's a real cookbook.
1: It's, a, it's a real, real cookbook. Uh, yes, I had
0: to buy it, of course, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then, but, yes. um, There's a continuity with uh, some of the, pre- uh, you said, betre- uh, preoccupations you've had before with childhood. And mm-hmm. fairy tales became only really targeted at children at a certain period. I that's mean, it right. was a kind of mo- early modern mm-hmm. to Victorian period whereby they were seen as, and that's really because they was. Seem to be fantastical, and somehow we adults should have grown out of fantastical imagination. We should be rational and empirical, and not go for this kind of thing. So, but um, but I think that there's a tendency. I don't know if you would agree um, now that the fairy tale is just simply moving out of that. I mean, we've almost forgotten it, and we're now more worried about children's exposure to it, That's and, see it and see fine. it more as a f- as a f- as a form for adults. That's
1: right. Inappropriate. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So Betelheim that first, well, he suggested that fairy tales are great for kids because we tell them the good are rewarded and the bad are punished, and that's exactly what happens in fairy tales. But most people find them too violent. And I know my wonderful son sitting here up front, he was really disturbed when I insisted that we read the original Rumpelstiltskin. Yes. <laughs> it turned out really good. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but also, I mean, the, the, there are many of the great classics that aren't quite so happy ending, no. ha, don't have such happy endings as people imagine about the form. I mean, Little Mermaid that you just... Yes, Hans Christian yes. Andersen are uh, yes. all downers. So, yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Unless you believe in God. Yes. 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 So um, do you
0: think that the sexual, gender, sex and gender aspects that you've looked at so much before, uh, do you feel that you've been through that and you don't need? Because I, I actually missed a little bit, uh, connections to your wonderful book, Reading Boyishly, because there you mount this marvelous argument for soft men, <laughs> um, or soft, yes, soft, soft yes, for soft. But, I mean, you call it this, It's a defence of the sissy That's right, through yeah. the lens of Winnicott. Bart, uh, Proust, Lartigue, Lartigue, um, So these, these these men who were not all gay actually. They were. Um, Lartigue was not gay. Um, Winnicott wasn't gay. So it's not all. It's but,
1: but very they, deep connections to the mother, or yeah. to the apron string. So even though Winnicott was not gay, he of course wrote about the good enough mother yes. all this marvelous work on motherhood yes. and used yes. the idea of. Psychological treatment as being like maternal care.
2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: On, on one side of the, of the book, you've got this uh, Aurelian... Uh, theme of, of the mouth and the, and the speech and, the, and, the, and eating. But, of course, there's also this underlying question about the unformed pupa, mm-hmm. which is in the, in the nymph, in the Aurelia nymph, we associate that much more strongly with, with the girl, the with girl the nymphette. Asked. But your nymphs are mostly boy nymphs, I think, in this book. <laughs> Oh, that
1: sounds good. Another (laughs) title, The Boy Nymphs. (laughs) (laughs) The Boy Nymphs, yes. Yes. Uh I hadn't really thought about that before. Of course, I I began thinking about that initially through reading Nabokov's Lolita, where, of course, he, as a great butterfly collector and a reader of fairy tales, that is what made me think so much Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. the pupa and the sort of place in between adulthood and childhood, but also, as uh, Nabokov makes clear, and you, you've written about this um, as well, there's a kind of trying on of gender or a kind of place in between of male and female that I think the how
0: inhabits. Yes. And also metamorphosis, the idea of transformation, is probably central to fairy tales themselves, mm-hmm. the classic fairy tales, and to the forms that you are looking for. Yeah, that's right. These are mo- mostly transformational mm-hmm. examples of photographers and artists. Mm-hmm. In, in the book, who's the most female of the... Is there what, I'm trying to remember if there's, there's, <coughs> there's... Francesca Woodman. Do you want to talk uh, a bit about her? I'm
1: getting hung up on. What's yes, feminine. We, yes, What's I feminist? know. Oh, yes. My graduate yes. school nightmares are coming no, back. No, to no you're me. right. You're right. I can't even yes. answer the fact. Yes. I, I was a student of Donna Haraway who didn't believe in gender. We should just it should be science fiction, so. <laughs>
0: yes. But yes. the most feminine. Well, only I, I'm just interested because you had this reading boyishly. I'm interested in the question of not only reading girlishly, but also mm-hmm. making girlishly.
1: Making Crate, creating
0: things girlishly I think I think I lost it I'll ask you about Francesca Woodman
1: okay well I, I would like to own making things girlishly because I think that's been my approach to life for, for yeah. a long time yeah. maybe I, even I, in the, the way in which I write which I do well, it's something that Yves Kasavsky said it calls weak theory. I think that's what I do, that, in, in, that you have to embrace. A, it's not that it isn't important, but there's a kind of softness to it, a kind of boyishness to it as well. Yes. Well, the there's, it's, it's
0: definite, the there's definitely a sensuousness, and there's definitely a, a, a position not of, ma- of a, a ownership or authority um, over the material, but of inquiry. The, that's is The, the kind of the, the, the no. metamorphic, metamorphic relationship in itself so the reader is drawn in at the beginning as a sort of pupa yeah. and then and kind of is then changed um, in the course of the journey through 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 these examples and these extraordinary um, findings extraordinary images
1: and I think in the book does. Begin with you know Francesca Woodman, the photographer, with her holding a big round plate. So I'm very interested mm. in that kind of openness, that the open mouth, the openness of possibilities, dismantling. I think that power between the author and the reader.
0: Good. All right. So shall I open it up to the to the to the company to the house while you while you're um, thinking. I'm going to ask you a little bit about the process of making the book because it's a very, as I said earlier, it's a very remarkably made object. Do you start with a series of key images or?
1: I keep a lot of notebooks and I store images that maybe have to do with the research that I'm doing right now or I might return to them many years on, so I go Back and forth between finding new images and going back to the old notebooks and writing about. Those and
0: how images. did you persuade the publisher to publish so many pictures in color?
1: Michael's not here. Is
0: he? <laughs> you can talk. He's frank. a very
1: funny man. He has a good sense of humor, and um, I'm not afraid to beg. <laughs> and uh, so I start out begging. First, when he asked me to write the uh, Blue Mythologies, and I had sent him reading Boyishly, which is full of pictures of yeah. very famous, and he said, I don't want another reading Boyishly. So he does try to set down the law. But um, with this book, I um, started asking for special things right from the beginning. And he wrote this funny email back to me. Um, sp- I promise. To sprinkle a little fairy dust on it, but I don't think it's right to start designing the book before it was written. <laughs> so you know, I stay engaged, and yeah. the reaction is really, really good to me. And I did, I did go over on the pictures, and he just will say, "There's uh, seventy more pictures than <laughs> you originally." <asked> for.
0: <laughs> no, well, it's remarkable because, in fact, there's been a lot of cutting down of this. I mean, even though there's been a rise in Creating more beautiful books and designing them more beautifully, um, driven oddly enough by the internet, yeah. um, created, given more mm-hmm. t- attention to the fabrication of books. Uh, actual picture costs, permission costs, have driven out so many images from books. So wow. it is—I I mean, it is absolutely stunning, and the production is beautiful. The reproduction. Yeah, so lucky. let's yes. So <laughs> question. Here, questions? I
1: mean, I could, yes, you were. <laughs>
0: I was just wondering, I wanted to press a little bit on what you said about Alice and um, the anorexic tendency. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is there something going on with that auralia consumption, oral pun, the auralia um, and arrested development? Yes. Is there something about uh, <laughs> almost food as a stand in for starvation or development? Yes. Is that something that you explore in this? And would you like to say something about it? just struck yes, me that that yes, might I be an interesting.
1: I think about that a lot. I mean, I think Lewis Carroll is a great example of it. Not just those biographical, funny little things about dinner parties and taking <coughs> the children to the dentist. But he photographed children when they were children. And that, of course, stops them from growing. It keeps them forever young. So, and then that's very <coughs> interesting in, when it's coupled with Alice who seems to be a reaction to the woman with breasts and hips and able to have babies and grow so large and the way she shrinks um, away from it and then also the growing, I see it as a kind of anxiety about women at that um, particular time. But even someone like Bernard Foucault I invite you to go to his website. It's a very beautiful um, website, and you can tell Marina whether you like it or not. (laughs) Um, It's faucon, or you can just buy the book. But there, it's very clear that he also does not want to grow up, or has is more interested in being a kind of eternal adolescent, which is what I would um, say Lewis Carroll um, is as well. Um, So. And we see that in, a, you know, like J. M. Barry's, um Peter Pan, where you know Peter, Peter doesn't eat anything at all. He he can, he can make himself look full when he's not eating at all. He'll he'll bulge out <laughs> his belly, and I think there there's an idea to eat is to grow is to die, mm. and I think a lot of these. Uh, magical images, whether they're of Faucon or the stories of Lewis Carroll are about that. And that very much relates to photography, which keeps the child or the person forever alive or forever small. But of course, at the same time, it's the death of that particular moment.
0: There's a, quite a contrast, actually, to this in the book, which you were going to talk about, and I'm afraid we seem to have run out. which is the... The Langston Hughes right. um, work he did for the Brownies book? The Brownies, the
1: Brownies uh, magazine. magazine. Was, yes, the, which was uh, short lived um, yes. in America, that yes. was for Our Children of the Sun, where he worked with um, Du Bois on uh, that. Was yes. Quite
0: a remarkable thing. It, Say a bit more about it, because we
1: um, Well, um, I think that I don't, I'm not sure what. It, if that relates to the, if well, I relates, well, I think it relates. Well,
0: it relates because I think there isn't a desire to arrest their development. I mean, I think oh, picking I see up what on the you're question. Saying. Absolutely, I mean, I think that, right. it's rather a contrast, a counterpoise. That's it's right. it's it's rather active, and um, I mean, what what I only know it through what I read right. in your book, so I haven't seen, but it's um, ex, ex, a bit rather surprising, actually, from Langston Hughes' earlier period in his life, as you discuss yeah. before the, the the very you know dark, sad. Uh, lament poems, before he's lost hope, I think. That's
1: right, that's uh, right, that's And right. And so
0: they're, they're positive, and re- I mean, do you want to yeah. run up?
1: Um, uh, oh, the image. Yes, of, wonderful um, image. Yeah, it's a and, really beautiful um, image. And the children
0: seem to be actually being granted their childhood, which is always a question, that's right. it, you know, around...
1: This is the the one cover, of the yeah. covers of the Brownie book was this um, beautiful uh, African American child up you know, up on tiptoes and and so happy and so there was this idea that Du Bois had that these children were so surrounded by lynchings and horrible violence mm-hmm. that they had to have this magical beautiful place for themselves. So it's in this chapter that I want to make brown the color of the fairy tale. Yeah. And I try you know we don't usually think of brown as a is such a beautiful color but of course I have a long list it's very convincing of how beautiful brown is and I talk about these brown fairies and in fact Langston Hughes wrote his first published uh poem in the Brownies book as a teenager which was about a maple sugar child so mm-hmm. we it, it's amazing what he did you know he's born in Mexico he had been all over the world and so he would also collect um, stories um, from children's stories from different places in the world and Mexican toys and so forth to give this very rich understanding of a non-white kind of culture.
0: Um, Do you think, is, is brownie a term in America? I mean, because in England, of course, in Scotland, it's a term for... For
1: fairies. Yes. Uh, it's, it's food. Um, in America. Yes. <laughs> so um, having a brownie. So you might know the artist Joseph Cornell. So yes. he would have um, his one his last exhibition that he had. He invited only children and hung the art down very low and served the brownies um, and cherry coke. And in fact, I mentioned this wonderful wor- word, Aurelia, O-R-A-L-I-A. Mm. That, that's Michael Moon's term. And he's talking about uh, Joseph Cornell, who just oh, loved right. kids' food. So if he'd have fancy curators over, he'd give them jelly donuts and Kool-Aid. <laughs> so again, this sort of very <laughs> over-the-top interest in childish sweets. Yes, yes. Uh, but
0: yes, they... Yayoi oh, y- 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 Kusama, in her autobiography, talks about her relationship with Cornell. Oh, you know, she, had a, yes, that is, yes. she had a very, very intense relationship with him. And she also is a, a play acting child in a lot of her, yes, both her life and her work. That whole and Alice in Wonderland yeah. performance yeah. in yes. New York, absolutely. Yes. He
1: was yes. also friends um, with uh, Carolee Schneeman, who you might know, yes, who yes. did the interior scroll. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Mostly telephone conversations. There,
2: there's another story I, I've had in mind as you've been talking. Uh, I, I'm sure you know Babette's Feast, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, which is another incredible story about... I think
0: you need to put it closer.
2: Uh, for ...another there. incredible about story about food, food yes. um, and I, I, I wondered if you m- might be able to say a little bit more about the idea of um, the sort of motif of, of food as transformative. The opening of of, of Eating as, as as, And also, I suppose, the eating of the book.
1: The eating uh, yeah, of the book.
2: Because uh, the reader is transformed in, yes. in some sense. And yes. I, I think a lot of fairy stories intend the reader to
0: be transformed to, yes. and to eat the book and, and be changed.
1: Yes, I Eat
0: the book, of course, comes in the apocalypse. The angel true. makes John eat the book.
1: Yes, yes. So
0: that's how he sees the visions.
1: So s- swallowing or, yeah. or eating of words. I am very interested in the idea of eating words, actually, through uh, Marcel Proust. And um, his interest in, con- he would always, in, in search of lost time as a young man, he would have always rather read than eat. So there's a, there's a kind of substitution there, I think, between words and eating. Um, and, and that's what fed him, and he was also very controlled in later life um, I don't know if that's getting what you're at
2: I I wondered to what extent you set out to change us
1: oh to change us to transform your readers oh well I mean I do set out to change readers I, I want you to take this fairy tale seriously I want you to think about magic and imagination seriously I want to I think it's interesting for us to look at the fairy tale and through our own contemporary lenses um, as well, just as they were written or told during that time with the particular struggles that people um, were
0: having. Your question goes so deep. I mean, if you're in a Christian culture, even if it's not only Christian and not everyone is Christian, but, I mean, it is the case with Jewish um, thinking too. I mean, the word is you know I mean isn't
1: it and jeremiah yeah. when your words came i ate them i mean it is it's no. you know.
0: the idea of nourishment and and language are orally connected
2: i was wondering about um, i found it fascinating this idea of sugar as uh, being violent and um, sorry hold it closer yes. <laughs> and i wondered um, and uh, Carol, your your description of photography as swallowing and spitting back out the subject. Yes, uh-huh. And um, Susan Sontag writes about photography as <coughs> an inherently violent yes. medium. Yes, and I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. I mean, I, I don't really agree with it, and I just wondered about the violence of photography and your thoughts. Okay. Well,
1: of course, in, in on photography, Susan Sontag talks about... Um, uh, how the photograph takes something, and uh, in fact, my first book that Marina so kindly read it was called "Pleasures Taken," and I think it's about that contradiction that you're talking about. To to take when you take someone's photograph, you are taking something from them, but at the same time, I think that the sitter, especially if they're a really good photographer like Lewis Carroll, no matter how hard you try to take them the way you want to, there's something of themselves that comes. Um, back through. I do think there's a, a violence to photography. There's a violence of that lost moment or, or that time, but I don't think we should shy away from violence or necessarily see it through such a um, strictly kind of moral kind of lens. But interestingly, with sugar and photography. So um, in the 19th century, when it was um, first invented, maybe you already know, it was called the culinary period of photography. Mm. So they would actually use things like treacle um, um, as part of the development and part of the process. However, they also used you know, uh, arsenic and terrible things as well. So it's it sort. Of, it's both the sweet and the violent or sort of the preserving that, that of course, the
2: preserve. This is actually more, I think, of a question for Marina, if that's okay. Um, I read with great enjoyment your book, um, Stranger Magic, about the Arabian Nights. And my question is, this connection between orality, the, the, the orality of the Arabian Nights and many of those oriental tales, and also food in the tales, do you see the same connection persisting in those stories as well?
0: The main presence of food in the Arabian Nights is absence, is hunger, as it is actually in a lot of fairy tales. So Aladdin, when the genie arrives, the first uh, thing he he produces for the family is food. They're starving. Um, And poverty and absolute disaster fall upon many, many characters in many different settings actually, sometimes domestic, sometimes... So, and that's, I mean, that is something that could have... Uh, hunger is in your, your book, in your in your orality, but actually there's more sufficiency. There's more of a sense of, 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 of not, not, not a kind of, yeah, it's not the same as famine. It's
1: not the same as no. famine, but no. I think there's a kind of desire or emptiness mm. or a hunger mm. or mm. something. More yes. than mm. photography, I think, yes, uh, represents, but it's yes. not a real mm. Mm. lived experience of like mm.
0: It's uh, interesting because uh, the Arabian Nights is very, very oral in its structure because it's a series of you know, nighttime conversations and recitations, but it doesn't actually have the same seg- segue into. They, for they never eat during the telling of the story because they're in bed which is quite, you know, so Even though it's such a great place to eat, I find. It. My father disagrees. good. Yes,
1: yeah. 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 there's
0: no there's no mention of it. But then, of course, the bedtime scenes are very laconic. Obviously, for both of you, your main focus has been on the semiotics of fairy tales, the meanings you can read into them and, and take from them. But I wonder if you had any views on the origins of a lot of the, the, the fairy tales. I, I remember reading a book recently about the Grimm, saying that, in fact, most of the tales there, the famous ones, rather than having a, a kind of Volk-type origin, in fact, ha, had literary origins back in, 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 in the 15th century in Italy. So in fact,
2: these weren't some upwelling of, of, of national kind of feeling. They were always literary tales. I wonder if that was relevant to either of your, your views on fairy tales.
1: I think Angela Carter w- would say, why this need to find the original author? That's why I talked about borrowing a cup of sugar. That they, These tales are out there. But where, who was the first person to tell that tale or write it down? And how does that change that story for us? Um, so I think all of them are always going to be in the middle of things. You're never going you're all, there's always going to be an earlier one that you can find or another rendition. Not that those histories aren't important, but I also wouldn't want to play down the oral retelling of them.
0: I think and it's, You're an expert on all. Well, this. I'm I'm not an expert, but I think it just yeah. flies in the face of <laughs> the fi- face of all our experience. I mean, all of us who've ever read or been told stories know that the odd thing is they have a sort of facial resemblance. They sound, you you kind of know the grammar of them and where they might go. Then they'd spring a delicious surprise because this is a new variant. But even from quite young, you get that sense. And that's because they're extremely ancient. They they can be, the earliest Cinderella we know, it is very much Cinderella because there's a lost shoe involved, is from China in the ninth century. The, and, 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 she, and she marri- the yeah. and she marries a prince, you know. It's uh, she um, and you know he's studying for because it's Chinese and they're very keen on studies. He's studying, and she, so which of course he never does in any of the Western ones. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but um, um, and and then there are just numerous lost examples, but who sometimes that sometimes sort of materialize. For example, the first mention of the Arabian Nights and the frame story of Shahrazad pleading for her life by telling stories and winning her the safety of women and herself is it was mentioned in a very, very early text. We don't have the Arabian Nights until later, but we have that mention. So there's just an endless family resemblances. And that's much more mysterious than the origin of each story, is how the human species had this astonishing imagination at the beginning, you know, way back. Um, I remember John Berger once said, you know about painting he said and drawing he was in the caves at Chauvet i think they are and he and he said looking at the uh, paint the drawings on this on the cave walls he says in the beginning there was no fumbling <laughs> cavemen <laughs> drew really well and similarly cave women told really good stories and that book that you've um, i think it's a very fraudulent and false book and i'm extremely distressed by the fact that people are paying attention to it. Because I think that to say Straparola invented these ancient stories. I mean, Straparola is a very amusing, entertaining Venetian writer, but he's absolutely not the originator of the rags-to-riches fairy tale. Well, that's been known for a long time, because the Germans stories. The Grimm's themselves edited the book because they wanted to, get, uh, to, to exclude French, fa- French fairy tales, Italian fairy tales. And they kept finding that their German ones that they'd collected, else here and there, had elements of resemblance, as I just said. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, the same would happen if, if you tried to make an English national body of fairy tales. You keep trying to exclude bits. You could, could, could do it more for the Welsh. The Welsh have actually got a body of, and that's because the language is smaller.
2: You mentioned just now um, about the drawing on the caves versus the telling of the stories, and I was interested in the book about, um, it seems so concerned with um,
1: what's going on with the verbal
2: as well as the visual, and I wondered, just thinking about how um, they engage with storytelling and if you think that, verbal and visual are working often in harmony or if there's kind of conflict or just thinking about those two media and how
1: they how they relate to kind of telling the fairy tale i i think that i truly don't separate the verbal with the visual in in my own practice or or in my own thinking and i also think and Fairy tales, or even early illuminated manuscripts, which I start the book with, words are pictures um, right from the beginning. So I think, I don't know if that answer, answers your question so much, but I think also the way um, many people, but I think Philip Pullman in his new book on Grimm's, does especially well, that that's also why they are the Grimm's fairy tales are so pared down visually so that you can imagine, I think, that, that you can fill it in so that we don't, we get stock figures, we don't get the specifics. So there, it engages you to be a kind of writerly reader, like Roland one might encourage, where you're riding along. Um.
2: So I'm not entirely sure of, of, this might be a bit fuzzy, but I was interested in what you were saying about the origins of, of the fairy tales and about the first Cinderella coming from sorry the first Cinderella coming from China um, which I had never heard of that, I, was, I thought that was fascinating
0: the first
1: Cinderella that we know about that, that. we I mean, know, in important.
0: fact it's told as if the audience already knows it, they don't, it isn't told when it's taken down as if this is the first time that has heard it or the fa- that first person's told it I that's think a very characteristic of fairy tales that people already know them But I
2: find it fascinating that it came from China, that there was a Cinderella in China. And I wondered if there was any... You you know the Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, I wondered if there's an overlap, if there's a... You know, that these stories are just sort of arising spontaneously in different parts of the world because it's something to do with the psyche or...
1: I mean, we can do our research in libraries and find out information, but how could we ever know how could we ever answer um that question because all we can do is begin to imagine the past with the resources that we have but why is it so important to know the first telling
2: it's not so much the first telling it's the sort of it's the joining as i say like with with the hero with the thousand faces that Um, it's this idea that they have arisen spontaneously in different parts of the world maybe i mean i don't know i'm just asking like i just wondered about it
0: I mean, there are two yeah. theories. There are two basic theories. One that it's hardwired, that we will come mm. up, and that's the Campbell mm. and, and Jung, and the and the archetypalists who believe that, you know, we will always have a crone, we will always have a a poor eternus, a young lo- a young lad, there will always be a princess and her father. There would, and then and then and then there are the diffusionists, basically, and I think that probably, uh, well, uh, we're in the diffusionist camp. Um, which it's is that bas- bas- basically things are transmitted.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is mysterious,
0: but you can you can trace it in pockets. I mean, the example I just gave of Wales not having a very having very unique stories, and the other example of where there are very unique stories is is in some of the S- Central Asia, not not near the not near the Silk Route, but further north. There that there seem to be very unique Russian stories mm-hmm. that haven't tra- and literally haven't traveled because. They're inaccessible. They haven't had the same. Whereas the Chinese stories, the silk route was the main artery mm-hmm. of, of, of conversations. And it's the people. One of the sets of people I think were left out um, in the account of our children. Children listen to these stories, and then they and of course children are extremely quick at languages and very good at remembering. Mm-hmm. So the children actually really helped. I think but it's never been looked at and never been tested, my theory. <laughs> but we always thought of mothers. We always know there's mothers and grandmothers and so forth, but their audience was children. So that, the, they were the repositories. And they keep changing the stories. I'm pleased to put your hands together and thank the LRB, of course, but also Carol Maver and Marina Warner. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.
1: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.